Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today is kind of a fun little treat. Uh, since our listeners are history buffs, I am confident that many of them already know about David McCullough and who he is. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get to interview him recently about his brand new book, The Wright Brothers. Uh, so just in case you don't know, though, he is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner for his books, John Adams and Truman. Uh, if you watch the amazing HBO miniseries on John Adams, that was based on his book. Uh, he's written a great deal about history in addition to those two books, including 1776. Uh, and his last book was The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris, which actually gets referenced in this upcoming interview. He's also won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, as well as numerous other accolades. So in short, he totally knows his stuff when it comes to writing about history. In his latest work, he examines the lives of the men who are often considered to be sort of the quintessential American inventors. Uh, there are many inventors from America, but these guys often get pointed at as like, this is Americana. And I was so honored and so delighted to get to talk to him about it. So I am not present for this one, but just so everyone knows, this interview does not play out uh, in a, a narrative style story. Holly is going to jump around with some questions. There's going to be lots of discussion and back and forth. So basically a conversation, not so much a straight out story like we normally tell on the show. Yeah. So you won't get the linear Wright Brothers story, but you will get to hear, uh, you know, a lot of Mr. McCullough's interesting insights about his research and work on it. So let's just hop into that. So we are here with the very impressive David McCullough, and it is such an honor and just a delight for me to get to speak with you um, as a history buff myself. You are definitely in the royalty box in terms of historians. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Very generous of you. Thank you. I don't think that's particularly generous at all. <laughs> um, I have to tell you, I had a devil of a time putting together a list of questions for you about your new Wright Brothers book because... I wrote notes in the margins of almost every single page because you included so many gems. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, on the one hand, I'm like, ooh, I want to talk about all of these. But on the other, I also want readers to kind of have that wonderful experience of discovering each of these little gems for themselves. So I'm going to try not to be too self-indulgent with my questions. So you go right ahead and do as you wish. <laughs> so first, I'm curious, how much did you know about the Wright brothers before you started this project? Very little. I knew about just about what most most Americans know, which is not much, um, even educated, well-read people. I knew that they <clears throat> had had a bicycle shop, that they came from Dayton, Ohio, and that they were very clever, and they got lucky, and they invented the airplane, <laughs> all of which, except the got lucky part, is all true. But what I didn't realize was what they went through in order to achieve it how brilliant they were, how interesting as human beings, and how varied were their interests. And the fact that they had so little formal education, but yet that never seemed to slow them down in the slightest. Not in the least. And I I wanted to point out that your book definitely does paint a portrait that there is very little luck in the picture. Like, it is all their hard work and toil. Hard work and a refusal to give up. And to, and to learn from your mistakes, you get knocked down. And a lot of people just lie there and whine and look for pity and or blame it on somebody else. 
they never did any of that. They got back up and tried to figure out what went wrong and fix it. And the sort of primary natural adversities that they had to face in the way of the wild winds of Kitty Hawk, the horrific mosquito plagues, the um, realities of the crashes that they survived, that they went through all of that and yet still came on strong and succeeded. Indeed. They succeeded in steps, as you know. Yes. Uh, most people think, and I thought, that they flew the first time at Kitty Hawk on 19.3, and then all the world realized that there were airplanes, and <laughs> hence there were immediately airplanes. Well, it doesn't work that way. You have to wait for the rest of the world to catch on to the reality of what's been achieved. And so many people just knew absolutely for certain that man would never fly. And they just refused to accept the fact that, no, man is flying. And it, as you know, it took five years before the world suddenly said, oh, look what they can do. <laughs> um, and uh, that only happened because they went over to France. In this country, they were just being ignored and, and scoffed at and belittled and total indifference in, the, in terms of the public, the media the politicians, everything. It's sort of funny, sad in, in retrospect, but I'm sure that we're guilty of it too. That there are things that are right in front of our faces that are contrary to what we all know to be true, um, but we refuse to accept it. That's sort of that hindsight is 2020 problem. <laughs> yes. Similarly, though, to how their work kind of happened in stages and it was a slow process, I imagine the research on this book did not magically happen quickly. Like, you did a lot of deep digging. What was that process like? And at what point did you sort of start writing rather than just researching? Well, what what, what happened was that I, my last book is about those ambitious young Americans who in medicine and art and architecture and sculpture and literature who, in order to improve themselves, their, improve their abilities professionally, went to France because there was not sufficient or adequate training here. And when I finished the book, which ends in 1900, I really wanted to go on into the 20th century. And I began to comb around and look at who, who went to France and why and what they turned out to do or be. And I was astounded to read about the Wright brothers putting on their first really big public demonstration, but in France. And I began reading about them. And the more I read about them, the more I realized I don't know anything about these two men. And yet they accomplished one of the most extraordinary achievements in all history. They accomplished what nobody in all history had been able to do. And who were they? And how did they do it? And what was their background? What were they like? And all of that soon became abundantly clear, mainly because of a huge collection of letters at the Library of Congress, all of which have survived intact. Not just their letters, but the letters of their marvelous sister, Catherine, and their extremely important father. There are more than, over a, more than a thousand private family letters. And none of them ever was capable of writing a short letter or a boring letter. So it was really a, a feast. And you could get inside their lives in a way that you don't with people you know in real life because you can't read other people's mail. Nobody writes letters anymore. That's true. Uh, and it, it 
I'm glad you brought up Catherine and uh, the brother's father, Bishop Milton Wright, because it seems to me reading this book that really, while it is about innovation and this amazing achievement and sort of this kickoff into really the modern age in many ways, at the heart of it, this book really feels like a a, a story about a family and sort of... It is a family story. No, absolutely. I often thought it was like a play with four characters. <laughs> no, I'd say five or six characters. There are a few supporting characters of great value and importance, like Charlie Taylor and and uh, Amos Ruth, the bee man who comes down to see the spectacle for the first time and writes the first article ever published about it, and it's accurate. So I, I think that if I can say with confidence and with pride, to be sure, of what I feel I've contributed with this book, because there there are other books about the Wright brothers and some very good ones, but uh, the part of uh, the role played by Catherine has been largely ignored, and um, uh, with very few exceptions. And she was she was just such a character, <laughs> and it's, she's so re- refreshingly feisty and opinionated, and energetic and smart and and funny. They're all funny. Uh, the father isn't particularly funny, but the <laughs> brothers are very, very good-humored and clever. And then, then the, then the father—the fact the father kept that diary year after year—is—and that's where I found the part about who the person was that hit Wilbur in the teeth oh, uh, with yes. a hockey stick, which which changed his whole life. And to have it turn out to be a young man who turned. Who became the most one of the most notorious murderers in the whole history of Ohio was just shocking, stunning, in the extreme. And um, and he was a neighborhood kid, neighborhood bully. And I think that's important because it emphasizes, certainly emphasized to me, that as much as one would be tempted to see the environment. Community, the neighborhood that the Wright brothers grew up in, as a kind of idolized uh, Norman Rockwell Saturday Evening Post kind of cover. Uh, that in fact there were there was evil there. There was there was tragedy. This boy was so poor, his teeth were rotting, and the druggist in the drugstore where he worked as a clerk felt so badly for him. He started giving him the only real painkiller that was available then, which was cocaine. And the boy became a drug addict in no time, and then eventually an alcoholic. And then really turned bad and dangerous. So it isn't just that the genius, the American, the fulfillment of the American dream takes place in this neighborhood of Dayton, Ohio, but real tragedy and and, uh, and evil. Well, and I, I love that that sort of story, which when I got to it in the book, I was on a flight with a colleague of mine and I was literally turning to him and going, oh, my gosh, I never knew this. Um, but it kind of contextual. <laughs> I did. Well, that's the way that's the way I was all the way through. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I never knew this. I think, I think one of the most incredible, most exceptional and to their credit turnarounds that they make in the whole story is when they find out, discover on their own that all the technical data, the, the statistics, the formulas that all the, the wise physicists and professors and the like 
had concocted over the years for the realities of aviation and wing design and so forth were all wrong. The Orville said, worthless. So they had to start all over again on their own, just as they had to build their own gas engine because nobody that was making one that was powerful enough and yet lightweight enough to serve their purpose. They'd never made a gasoline engine, ever. And uh, nothing was too daunting for them to take on. And they had no political connections. They had no, they had no money in the bank. They had no university or foundation supporting their experiments. They're doing it on their own with the very slim profits they made with their bicycle shop. And uh, thank goodness for Charlie Taylor, because they may not have gotten there without him. Oh, no, 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 no. Without, without Catherine, Bishop Wright, Charlie Taylor, and I, and I give that fellow John T. Daniel down at uh, Kitty Hawk enormous credit. He, he really uh, was there when needed and, and had the courage to, uh, to see that these weren't just a couple of crackpots. Actually, a lot of people that come up in the book that don't normally get much attention in the telling of the Wright Brothers story, including Charlie Taylor, who ran their bike shop when they were gone and kept it going so that they would have a little bit of money to actually fund this. And Amos Root, who you mentioned earlier. And he's the one that built the motor. Yeah. He's the one that built the aluminum motor. Nobody ever made an aluminum motor in all history. So it makes me wonder, and I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, why do you think these really pretty important characters in the story get glossed over so much of the time? Well, unfortunately, too many who step up to tell stories uh, spend too little time looking at the secondary characters. Um, I find them not only... Invariably, invariably interesting in, in every subject I've taken on, but also very valuable in what they observed of the principal characters, what they saw in them, or what they contributed to the success of the principal character. Um, uh, none of us are alone in life. And no such thing as a self-made man or self-made woman. It's an absolute myth that expressions just ought to be gotten rid of. We're all the result of people who influenced us, shaped us, parents, teachers, friends, rivals. Um, And of course, there's always that element of luck. What if they'd had one of them had had bad luck and gotten killed? And of course, they could have gotten killed every single time they went up and they knew it. And yet they didn't didn't hold them back. They never they never went up together because they realized that one of them might get killed, and then there had to be another one still left alive to carry on with the dream. Which, again, I would imagine at that point they would really have to rally their secondary support team. Thank goodness it never happened. But Yes, indeed. It's interesting to me that when Wilbur died prematurely, so tragically, in 1912, Orville really did not do too much for the rest of his life. He was busy, but... The two heads were better than one. Orwell was very clever, no question about it. Great mechanical ingenuity. But Wilbur was a genius. I don't think there's any question about it. Yeah. And uh, 
He was the leader. He was the big brother, just as it had been from childhood. He was the boss. And there's an enormous amount to learn about leadership from those two men. I gave a talk at the Tuck Business School up at Dartmouth College, and I stressed the importance of their command of language. They knew how to express themselves on paper. And, in Wilbur's case, on his feet, speaking. Um, it's essential, and particularly today, when so little of these, few of these young people in our country know how to write, know how to write a presentable letter, know how to write a convincing report or analysis. Leaders have to be readers, and they have to know how to express themselves. And not just in politics or the law, in every line of work. It's interesting that you mentioned the two being... Uh, kind of the greater as a pair, um, because to me, the way you lay out the book and the way you describe each of their characters, in some ways, they almost seem so much like two parts of one whole. Like they are clearly both very industrious and smart, but their comp, their different personalities complemented each other oh, so entirely perfectly. Entirely different. Um, and of course, Catherine and Orville were very close from childhood on. And and more confiding to each other on a on a personal or emotional level, and she's the boss of, <laughs> of the whole household. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love her. And and how about when Orville's almost killed in the crash at Fort Myers, and she's resigns her job or takes an extended leave of absence packs her bag, is on the train to Washington in a matter of a couple of hours, and then spends the next month and a half or whatever it was at his bedside, at his beck and call, doing everything she can until she gets him back on his feet, more or less. It wasn't just that she was helping with his physical struggle, but his emotional state of mind, which was very serious. I think I think she saved his life. He, he said so. It certainly seems that way. I mean, I can't imagine that he would have made it through without her. And it, it brings up another question I wanted to ask you, because they, uh, when Wilbur first goes to Paris ahead of Orville, it seems like the family really had a hard time dealing with this separation and this distance. And Orville yes, and Catherine... Terribly. Orville and Catherine really seem to be almost near breaking down in some ways. Both of them just seem so harried. I, I think they I think they were breaking down. Do you think that was just the stress of sort of the business situation that was going on with them getting backing? Or how much of it was just that this was really the first time that Wilbur, who was such a leader to them, was away from them and they were just having this separation without sort of their steady rock? No, you took you take you take out the keystone and the arch begins to crumble. And he he was the he was it. And those marvelous letters he writes back to them. Shape up, he says. <laughs> Everything's all right. Don't worry so much. Um, and he's right on every count. I, the other thing I really love was when he when he gets angry at Octave Chanute toward the end of the book. And but he writes the letters expressing their point, the, brother, the point of view of the brothers to, to Chanute and criticizing Chanute, but never being disrespectful, never being nasty or 
or uh, addictive in any way. This may sound very strange, but I read God knows how much about them written by other people, newspaper reporters, uh, fellow experimenters, aviators. I never found one derogatory line or paragraph or page. Nobody, it seems, ever said anything sharply, painfully critical about them. Yes, they did say they thought they were a little cuckoo, but that was that was before they realized that what they had done had, had, had come to pass. They, they had succeeded. I think what, what, what another. I really. I think what this book, this their story, also reminds us of are the old, the old fashioned manners and values. You you maintain modesty no matter how big a deal you become. You. You remember where you came from, and you and you and you don't look down on other people because they haven't done as well as you have, or they don't know as much as you have, or they aren't as well off as you have. You become none of that, and you're honest, and you're and oh God, do you work hard? <laughs> I think one of the things that I've learned uh, in my years of writing about our American forebears, is that we really have far too little appreciation of how hard they all worked. Oh, goodness, yes. And including those that never succeeded, including those who failed, including those who had tragic, heartbreaking endings and the rest. But, oh, they had to work hard. And hard work was seen as part of being a decent human being, part of being a citizen. During pulling your share of the, of the weight. And I feel that these are lessons we need to keep keep in mind, keep passing on to each new generation. It's history. It's history. That's what you exactly. learned from history. Um, I, I'm glad that you brought up sort of that there was nothing really negative or cutting ever said about them and how decent they were because I kept, as I was reading, I just was struck over and over again by how, even though there was a lot of competition to get to manned flight, they never yeah. spoke ill of their competitors. Even when Samuel Langley really was getting kind of roasted yeah. in the press, Wilbur actually spoke out against yeah. the way he was being treated. Yeah, he came to his defense. Yep. And they just seemed like such incredibly decent gentlemen that it, it just really struck yeah. me as uh, they were sort of such they a were. good, a good kind of, um, inspiration as just a model of great character. Well, I love, too, the fact that the French adored Wilbur. Mm-hmm. Yet Wilbur made no attempt to learn their language. He, made, he was he was just being exactly who he was the whole time. <laughs> and because he seemed so American, so truly uh, pure, uh, unadulterated American, they loved him for it. Uh, <laughs> And it was his his attitude, his spirit, his sense of purpose. And he became, as I mentioned in the book, he became the most popular American in France ever uh, since Benjamin Franklin. And uh, and he did it just by, and he was there over a year, so they had plenty of time to look him over. <laughs> um, I feel that 
once in a while you run into somebody on a plane or at a meeting of fellow professionals or whatever, you on vacation, you run into somebody you really like and you wonder, God, isn't it great I've run into this person and and why didn't I know him sooner or her? <laughs> and that's the way I feel about the Wright brothers. Um, I wish I'd known them all along. Yes. Uh, because I think that they set such a superb example that can be of of encouragement and uh, stimulation to for all of us, each of us. And I love that you include the details about when they were all in France together and how the one of them who really seemed to like get it and enjoy the whole thing was Catherine. Like she didn't mind the yes, press following getting, them. She learned to speak yeah, French. She's getting what she deserved. Finally, finally, <laughs> after all the loyalty and faith in them and sticking by them and sacrificing her own freedom in life for their, for their benefit. Finally, She's not only getting a holiday to, to dream of, but she's getting recognition. Wide and and vocal and visible rec- recognition. She could have stayed there another couple of months. Um, <laughs> though she didn't like Italy much. <laughs> Too dirty for her. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, too, I think that I find many similarities, um, not not coincidental, uh, between the Wright brothers and Harry Truman. Oh, and yeah. They, they, come from the, they come from the same part of our country. They uh, didn't have the advantage of higher education. They experienced big, serious setbacks more than once. Uh, but they they kept kept going, kept trying, and they never changed. They never let, let their importance or their success go to their heads. And I love the fact that the Wright brothers went right back to Dayton. Yes. They didn't buy a big apartment in New York. Or, and just as Truman went back to Independence. Very similar. And uh, pride, pride in the fact that they've been raised by parents who gave them good manners and the rest. And that whole little business when they're in Europe with all the aristocracy and people wonder, well, how is it that you act so naturally? And they don't, they in effect say, we think we're just as good as they are. I think that's quintessential American. <laughs> and it wasn't just, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, ego. It was just, they felt they had a right to be pleased with how they were brought up and what their values were and what their sense of responsibility and purpose was. Well, and the flip side of that is that also, like, when they were in the Outer Banks and they were uh, dealing with uh, William Tate, who was the former postmaster, who was a very um, yeah. simple means, they didn't treat him, they treated him as their equal, just no. as they felt they were the equals in Europe. Like, they pretty much yep. had an even playing field for everyone they encountered. Yes, they can get along with everybody. <laughs> and they know who they are. That's what, and Truman knew that. He knew who he was. Truman was going to... Uh, appoint uh, uh, George Marshall 
General George Marshall be Secretary of State. And in advance of the announcement, one of his political advisors said, well, you might want to think twice about that, Mr. President. And Truman said, why, why is that? He said, well, if General Marshall becomes Secretary of State, in three or four months, people will start saying that he'd make a better president than you are. And Truman said he would make a better president than I am. <laughs> but, I'm the, but I'm the president, and I want the best possible people all around me in jobs of importance. He knew exactly who he was. And that's, that's true of the Wright brothers. They know who they are. And they know that what they can do and what they can produce and how much they can contribute, stand. Very similar. Well, and I have to say, I, I wonder how much of that comes from just their support from their parents from an early age to just try things and do yes. things. And yes. I, uh, one of my very favorite details in the book is when you write about Orville's first business, which is very early on in the book, uh, the printing, the printing shop that he started as a teenager. And I actually, when I read this one part, I turned, I was still on the plane with my colleague and I was like, will you read this and tell me I'm not having a cerebral event and then I'm reading the words I'm reading because he made his first printing press with a discarded tombstone, a buggy spring and yep. scrap metal. I love Great. that. <laughs> oh, me too. Um, is there a similar little detail or anecdote about their lives that just resonates with you, even if it's maybe not one of the more important or momentous events? To me, one of my favorite scenes is, is when they're, um, they're camped at Kitty Hawk and, uh, Orwell has a little too much coffee and he can't sleep at night. <laughs> and he, and he, and he comes up with the idea of connecting the, uh, warping, uh, apparatus to, to the rudder. Right, and, to a hinged rear uh, rudder, right? Yes, and he, at breakfast the next day, he presents the idea knowing that Wilbur will shoot it down right away, because that's Wilbur's Technique makes Orwell fight to prove that his idea is good. And Orwell winks over at Lauren, the other brother. You know, I watch this, how he's going and, and Wilbur thinks about it for a minute, says nothing. And he says, That's a great idea. Let's go do it. <laughs> and he went out and, and changed. We wonderful scene. Oh, and I love it when they get into arguments and they wind up taking the opposite side. <laughs> they both wind up taking the, what the other one's original point was. I'm trying to remember who it was, one of the secondary characters that relayed that the two had had a fight, and then they each individually came to him later and said, you know what, my brother was right. Yeah, that was Charlie <laughs> Taylor. Yeah. I couldn't remember if it was him or not. I love the character Amos Ruth, the, the oh, B-man. Oh, goodness, yes. He writes the article, which is entirely accurate. Entirely true, offers it to Scientific American, and they just ignore it and ignore him. Don't even thank him for it. Yeah, he got no recognition for the work that he did. Like, as a journalist, he was way above everybody else covering the story. But don't you love it when the, the establishment keeps its nose in the air and somebody at a lower level comes in and takes the ball and runs with it? But we wouldn't have known if it weren't for someone like you to tell us about it. So thank you for that Well, one. thank you. Um, you have mentioned, I read, I think, in an interview that you thought that Charlie Taylor would be great fun to spend time with. Are there any other favorites for you among the supporting sort of cast of characters in the Wright Brothers story that you would also like to spend time with? Oh, yes. John Daniel. Daniels. 
at Kitty Hawk, then Bill Tate, and, um, well, as we said, Amos Roop, absolutely. I'd like to know them all. Um, and I'd like to know some of the people that mocked him. I'd like very much to know, or at least to have some experience talking to Langley. Oh, yes. Um, I, I would. And, uh, and William Howard Taft, I must say, he comes through at the end. He really does. Yes. And I think it's just, I think it's perfectly, perfectly appropriate that he's an Ohio man. <laughs> um, it, it, it's the kind of thing, if you put it in the novel, you say, no, 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 no. Have, the, have the president come from some other state, yes. Do you ever, or have you ever speculated on what might have been achieved if Wilbur had not died at the relatively young age of 45, and rather suddenly? No, I haven't much, but I tend to think maybe not a great deal would have happened, because when they go up together in the plane at uh, Huffman Prairie in, in May of 1910. I think that's their way of telling all their friends and neighbors who they invited to come there that they've done what they set out to do and they need do no more. Um, obviously, Wilbur hated business, hated legal fights in court. And many at the time and, and in the family thought that that's what so wore him down that he caught typhoid fever. Um, I think that the terrible destruction that this invention brought to the world would have broken his heart, as I'm sure it did. Horrible. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I try to remind people of is that when you think how the world has changed, since 1908, let's say, when he flies the first practical airplane in, at Le Mans. And yet, I could have known Orville Wright. Um, it's not very long ago. Right. Uh, he died in 1948. I would have been about 15. And I could have known him for three or four years, that nice old guy around the corner. Hmm. It, it, it's just a fraction uh, of time as history goes that this has all come about I was in looking at something the other day and I saw that in 2014 last year just at O'Hare Field in Chicago 70 million people went in and out of that airport flew in and out of that yeah. 70 million Yeah, and we were talking about two people that came along with the idea not very long ago None of us, neither of them, nobody at the time could have foreseen what they were letting out of the bag, good and bad. Yeah, I kept finding myself thinking, man, this is happening. A lot of these really big events, like as things had really gained ground and they were really considered successful, were really just a few decades before World War II when airplanes were a huge part of the strategy. So it's that's a big, big Pandora's box that got opened. Sure is. And, of course, Orville lived to see rockets and all the rest. Breaking the sound barrier Yeah, all happened before he died. Um, so, since you have written about and studied the rights, as well as many other innovators in history, 
and I, I suspect I might know the answer to this question, but uh, do you think there's one element or trait or skill that is just vital to being an inventor that modern creators and inventors need to take note of? Well, there, there isn't one, but one of the crucial is a big idea. They had a big idea uh, and and very powerful sense of purpose. And they weren't defeated by setbacks. They kept going. They didn't ever lapse into self-pity or blaming other people. And they loved their work. It wasn't just that they were doing it in order to succeed or to be big deals. They loved it. One of my folks, you asked earlier, one of my favorite scenes, or absolutely one I adore, is when they were putting on a two-day celebration in their honor in Dayton, and every time they could slip away, get back to their to the bike shop and get back to their work, they did it. <laughs> yes. and, the, and the New York Times reporter that followed them and kept a, a careful log of how many times they snuck away to keep, get back to work. I just thought that was as emblematic a scene as one could dream of. Yes. Uh, oh, and the other scene, too, that is just so... You think, oh, Hollywood might have invented... When they, when Wilbur flies up the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. What a scene. And the idea that he's getting those huge drafts of wind off of the skyscraper. So you have these two elements reaching for the sky. This, the buildings on the island of Manhattan and this little fragile plane with a canoe strapped underneath it <laughs> in case he went down in the water. So he's flying the, the latest, most ingenious, most unexpected form of transportation ever. But in order to have a little security in his heart, mind, <laughs> he straps one of the oldest means of, of transportation on the other underside of the thing. I just think it's hilarious it's, and so um, practical. Well, it's also a little poetic. You know, it's the, the brand new and the old and yeah. tested coming yeah, together. Exactly. He's, he's tipping his hat to history. <laughs> Tracy, that was my time with David McCullough. That's so awesome. It was. I like how you can just so clearly hear his great admiration for this entire family and for Wilbur in particular. Uh, I mean, he clearly has so much love for these people after he spent years and years reading their letters and putting together this bigger picture of it. I really did completely enjoy this book. I loved it so much. And if you would like to delve into this very thorough telling of the Wright Brothers story, uh, Mr. McCullough's book is out now. You can find it in any bookstore or online. And that is, uh, it is simply titled The Wright Brothers. And it is written, of course, by David McCullough. I think if you're into history at all, even if you may not think you're into the Wright Brothers, you will probably find it a pretty fascinating read. Uh, and I actually also have some listener mail. I want to hear it, too. All right, I'm going to share it. Uh, this is from our listener, Lauren, and she says, Dear Tracy and Holly, greetings from Canada. I've been a longtime listener to the podcast, and I've been looking for a good excuse to write you an email for several years now. In your relatively recent episode on carousels, you requested that listeners write in regarding historically significant jobs, and I had the excuse I needed. The first history-related job I held was as a game and ride attendant at a 1920s-themed carnival in one of the four time periods portrayed at Fort Edmonton Park, which is a living history museum in Alberta, Canada. 
One of our jobs was to operate the hand-carved reproduction 1920s carousel for visitors. I also gave tours of it. On the history of carousels and of the symbolism of individual horses of this particular example. I am not joking when I say that I could talk for at least 45 minutes about carousel history, but your podcast uncovered some awesome fun facts that I was unaware of. Here is my favorite fun fact about hand-carved carousels. The horses were generally... Uh, not identical on both sides. I was told by our volunteer woodcarvers that the people who made carousel horses would not make as much of an effort to carve and decorate the side of the horse that faced the inside of the carousel. The outside, of course, was meant to attract customers to ride the machine, so they were beautifully carved, painted, and decorated. People didn't see the other side of the horse until they'd already paid their money and were sitting on it, so they were usually much plainer. On the chariots that manifested as a single piece of wood that was about one inch thick and simply painted, in contrast with the outside side, which was heavily carved out of wood, at least as thick as the width of my palm. The carvers I knew called these sides the, quote, romance side, the one that attracted visitors onto the horse, and the, quote, money side, the one that saved the carousel commissioner money. Now I work as an interpreter at Elk Island National Park, which is home to the recovery herds for the Plains Bison and Wood Bison in North America. Surprisingly enough, I use my history degrees on a daily basis here. I listen to your podcast most frequently when driving to and from the park and town or as I drive through the park to work, often while stuck in traffic jams of bison or bison jams, if you will. I would love to hear more episodes on the history of conservation or national parks like Banff or Yellowstone. Uh, I really love this email because I had not uncovered that little tidbit about carousels. But now that I think about it, there have been some I've ridden on when the interior side of the horse was not as fancy pants as the exterior. And it makes perfect sense from a an economic standpoint, but I had never put much thought into it. So romance side and money side. Now we all know a little bit more. Uh, if you would like to write to us with some cool information you can do that at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history and at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com if you would like to check out any shirts or bags or phone cases, etc. If you would like to visit our parent site, that's HowStuffWorks.com. You can also come to our site, which is MissedInHistory.com. Check out show notes for every episode since Tracy and I have been on the podcast, as well as an archive of all of our episodes and the occasional blog post. And we hope you visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 